Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at Hebrews, the 13th chapter in my Bible, and I'm going to invite you to be getting a Bible open to Hebrews chapter 13 as well. We're going to spend uh, the next few minutes together in the Word of God, and it's going to be launching from Hebrews chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I will just say just what a privilege it is to be with you on this first day of the week. I love very much and just appreciate having the opportunity to lead our minds and our hearts in a study of God's Word. It's a responsibility that I do not take lightly, but I do ask that you give careful attention to everything that's said and examine it in light of what the Scriptures teach. And that's what we want to be about the business of over the course of these next few minutes. Read with me, if you will. In Hebrews chapter 13, I'm looking here at verse 4. In Hebrews 13 and in verse 4, the writer says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. According to a 2019 survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, 63% of young adults, and that's classified as men and women under the age of 30, 63% of young adults said that cohabitation is a path to a successful marriage. Let me maybe just restate that in simpler terms. Roughly two-thirds of young adults believe that living together is a good thing to do before you get married. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you that are listening to me this morning, you would disagree with that assessment. But you need to know that if you do disagree with that assessment, uh, that puts you in the minority in our culture and in our society. You know, what used to be called shacking up and what used to carry with it a serious stigma, a moral stigma to it, doesn't anymore. More and more, couples today are living together. In fact, that very same survey by the Pew Research Center found that 43% of Americans say that marriage is obsolete, that it is an outdated institution. As a result, the number of unmarried couples living together has tripled in just the last 20 years from about 6 million to about 17 million according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That seems to me that there's an awful lot of people who are very comfortable with this idea of being friends with benefits. One writer put it this way. He said, for today's young adults, living together seems like a good way to get the benefits of marriage while avoiding the risk of divorce. Couples who live together can share expenses and learn more about each other. They can find out if their partner has what it takes to be married and... If things don't work out, breaking up is easy to do. When you break up, you don't have to seek legal or religious permission to dissolve the union. So not surprisingly, young people favor living together before getting married. That, of course, stands entirely counter to what we just read in Hebrews 13 verse 4, doesn't it? Where the writer says there that marriage is to be held in honor and that the marriage bed, the sexual union, that that is to be kept pure. It is reserved for marriage. So where then does that put the Bible and Christians and the church in the eyes of many people in our world today? Well, of course, they think that we're just outdated, that we are irrelevant, that we are foolish in our old-fashioned and antiquated ways. I mean, come on. 
Who buys a car without test driving it first? You really think that people should get married without having a test drive first? Come on, the Bible is clearly mistaken. Yet this morning, I'm going to argue that the Bible is not mistaken. This morning, as we continue our preaching theme for 2020, I want to talk with you about the folly of living together before or outside of marriage. And I want to say to you emphatically that test-driving marriage, it does not, it will not, it cannot work. And I'm going to show you from Scripture why it is that God's plan for marriage, it still Matters, As you could probably guess, this is a lesson that's going to be just particularly beneficial and helpful for young people or for people who one day hope to be married. But I don't want folks who are married to just kind of check out and think that, well, this just really doesn't even involve me. No, married folks, you need to hang in here with me. Because at the end of this lesson, I'm going to say something that is very, very important for married folks as we think about what it is that we can do to correct this faulty line of logic and thinking that underlies this whole idea of test-driving marriage. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to set before you two big reasons for why it is that people should not live together before marriage. And the very first of those is probably just the most straightforward thing that I could possibly say at all, and that is this. And that is, God says don't do it. God says don't do that. And it is at this point that I'm going to actually start using some more official and biblical terminology instead of just using these euphemisms like living together and shacking up and the really political way of saying it, cohabitation. I want to just call this for what it really is. The Bible word is fornication. If you're reading from a New King James or from a New American Standard, that's actually the term that's used there in Hebrews 13 verse 4. Fornicators, sexually immoral as the ESV says. God calls that a sin and in fact He will judge those who practice it. And you need to understand that that practice, it is condemned not just in Hebrews 13 verse 4, but it is roundly and soundly condemned all throughout the New Testament Scriptures. Can we just run a little bit of Bible here? Look with me first of all in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter, Paul writes here, talking to the Corinthians about their bodies and how their bodies are to be used. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says to them, beginning in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality, fornication. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Just turn over a few pages to the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul speaks to this again, and in particular, the idea of, of living in fornication, an ongoing practice of that. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this is what you need to do with that, with that practice. In Colossians 3 and in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7 now, In these you too once walked. You once did these things when you were living in them. 
Paul says, don't be living that way. Paul says that kind of a lifestyle, it has to be mortified. That's the old King James terminology. Put it to death because God's wrath is coming on people who don't put those practices to death. One more verse in this connection. In 1 Thessalonians, please. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks here about the will of God. Very, lots of people are very interested in the will of God today. What is the will of God? How do we find out the will of God? I want to do the will of God. Okay, here's a passage that specifically says what God's will is. Do you know what it is? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look in verse 3. There Paul writes this. He says, for this is the will of God. God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That, of course, is just a sampling of passages of which there can be no question about what God thinks, God's estimation of fornication, living together outside of marriage. We know from just these few passages what God thinks about that. You don't need to have a Ph.D. You don't need to be a Greek scholar and understand Greek in the New Testament in order to understand what God's verdict is on this. The Bible repeatedly affirms the value of the marriage relationship. And, this is important as well, the Bible repeatedly affirms how the sexual relationship, it is good, in fact, it is proper and it is right in marriage, that it is to be exclusive to marriage and anywhere else where that takes place, it is sinful and wrong. Now I want to just say right here that this first point, this point and this point alone ought to be enough. I actually ought to be able to just conclude the lesson right now. Dim, go to black, and let's just say the final prayer, and let's just end it here. But God says, don't do that. God says, don't be involved in that, which means no further discussion, no question should be necessary. This settles it once and for all. Now, don't get your hopes up. I'm not going to conclude the lesson right here because in just a moment I'm going to attempt to elaborate a little bit more as to why God says not to do these things. But let's make one thing perfectly clear before we do that. Whether we ever understand the reasons for why God says don't be living together, don't think that you can somehow test drive the marriage relationship before actually plunging in to that commitment, whether we ever understand that or not is absolutely irrelevant. Our obedience to God, it is not contingent on whether we understand the rationale or even whether we agree with His rationale. If God says that trying to enjoy the benefits of the marriage relationship outside of marriage, if God says that that's sinful and that it's wrong, end of discussion. That's it. That settles it. We're going to obey God. That, 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 that's all that we're going to do. We're just going to do what the Bible says. But the truth of the matter is, even as we talk about God's law being very clear and being very direct, the fact of the matter is God's laws are not arbitrary and capricious. God didn't just give a bunch of laws just to give us a bunch of busy work. No. God's rules actually have powerful reasons behind them. Which leads right into this second big problem with thinking that marriage can be test-driven by living together. And that is that just practically it just doesn't work. It doesn't. God wants what is best for us. And a living together test-drive trial arrangement, it just doesn't work. Now, of course, what are people going to say about that? 
What many people are going to say is, what are you talking about? Again, who would commit to buying an expensive car without test driving it first? You really want me to commit myself to somebody for a lifetime without trying it out first? And you know, when you first hear that line of logic and argumentation, it kind of sounds logical, doesn't it? It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that any time our brilliant ideas, the things that we've thought of or the things that come from other human beings, if those things sound better than the clear and direct teaching of Scripture, that ought to be a red flag. There ought to be sirens and whistles and bells going off saying, warning, warning, warning. That ought to be cause for concern. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 14, please. In Proverbs 14, this may very well be the verse of the day. In Proverbs chapter 14, Solomon addresses this idea of, well, we're just so wise. We're just so smart. We've got all kinds of stuff figured out. In Proverbs 14, I'm reading here in verse 12, where the wise man says this. Proverbs 14 verse 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Anytime we think that we know better than the Lord, we're going to find out very quickly that our ideas and our thoughts are flawed, they are broken, and in fact, they just don't work. They lead to no good place. Somebody says, well, well how so? How so? You're up there saying it doesn't work. How so does it not work? I'm glad that you asked. First and foremost, I would suggest to you that a temporary relationship is a very poor proving ground for how people will act in a permanent relationship. You know, everybody has probably rented something before, haven't you? Back in the days of the brick-and-mortar movie stores, you've probably had the experience of renting a VHS tape or renting a DVD. Gentlemen, maybe you've rented a, a tool, a big tool that you didn't have and was very expensive in order to do something around the house. Renting a big jackhammer or renting a stump grinder. You've maybe rented a carpet cleaner before to work on your house and on your floors. Maybe you've rented a tent before for a wedding or an outdoor event. Most of us have probably had the experience at some point with a car rental. Let me ask you, how do you treat stuff that you rent? Go over here, there's an Enterprise car lot over here. Go over here, go to rent a car at Enterprise. How do you treat that? Well, I know how I treat cars that I rent. I don't have any qualms at all that as soon as I get out on the interstate, I'm going to see just how fast I can get from zero to a hundred and, well, maybe I'll take that back, zero to 65. I don't have any problems about that. Why? Because, well, it's not my car. I'm not concerned about it. I'm not really worried if that puts a big strain on the motor. I'm not concerned about other things pertaining to the car, about whether I get crumbs in the seat or whether I get dirt on the floor. Why? Because it's not my car. And so I'm not as, as careful and as gentle with it. Compared to my own car, the one that I've invested money in, that I've purchased for myself, I, I mean, after all, that's what that $15 a day in insurance is for at the rental facility. If I'm a little bit rough with that car, well, I really don't care because... It's a rental. At the end of the day, we're going to give it back. Let me ask you this. If you've ever rented a car before for like a week or a couple weeks for maybe a vacation, does anybody ever say at the conclusion of that trip, hey, you know what? 
we ought to take this car down to the, down to the shop, take it down to the garage, and we ought to get the tires rotated and get the oil changed and fill them, top off all the fluids and you know, get the engine worked on and, and just kind of give it a whole body. No! Nobody does that. I've never done that. It's not ours. We really don't care what happens to that rental because we were only interested in using it temporarily. In much the same way, when a couple says, hey, we're going to live together. Yeah, we're just going to move in together. We're going to try this relationship without saying I do just yet. That way, if it doesn't seem like it's going all that well, well, we'll just kind of break it off without any kinds of terrible consequences. When a couple says that, when a couple decides that, you know what they are saying? They are saying we're going to rent a marriage. That's what they're saying. We're going to rent a marriage. We're going to try this for a while and we'll see how it works out. But of course, in that arrangement, in that kind of arrangement, neither party will be as careful with the relationship as they would be to a fully committed relationship in marriage. When couples just live together, neither will work as hard to maintain the relationship, to strengthen the relationship as they would in marriage. When living together is going on, neither party will will sweat and worry and pray and try everything in their power to keep things together when the going gets tough because, because they can just terminate that agreement. I mean, after all, it's just a rental. They're not fully committed as they would be in marriage. Do you want to see that in the Bible? Look with me in the Old Testament in Judges. In Judges chapter 16, we're reading here about Samson. In Judges chapter 16, read with me in verse 1. In Judges 16 verse 1, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went in to her. Now, in verses 2 and 3, there are some Philistine folks who they don't really like the fact that Samson has went into this woman and so they cause some trouble. Verse 4, we then pick up with Samson. Well, what happens next? After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Hey, wait a minute. What happened to that woman up in verse 1? I'll tell you what happened. He wasn't committed to her. He was merely renting her. That's what's going on. And when he was done with that, wiped his hands clean and he moved right on to the next relationship. There was no commitment at all and that... That, I'm saying this morning, is completely different than the way things are in marriage. You think about it. In marriage, we're talking, maybe to use kind of a poker analogy, we're talking about an all-in proposition. We're putting all of our chips on the table. We're going completely in. There's no going back here. There's no return policy. You are all in. You can't test how someone will act in that all-in relationship by just going halfway. That, that doesn't work. I would say to you secondly, I would say to you secondly that the reason that living together outside of marriage doesn't work is because you're just always going to end up reaping what you sow. You know the verse I'm looking for, don't you? It's in Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, Paul sets forth here a spiritual law. 
This is an unavoidable truth. It really doesn't matter whether you agree with this or you believe this or not. This is how the entire universe operates. This law is in full force and effect. In Galatians 6 and in verse 7, Paul says there, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You know, people seem to think that you can sow a lack of respect for God and respect for His rules. That you can sow a lack of respect for the sexual union as God intended it to be. That you can sow a lack of respect and mutual commitment to this other person And then somehow at the end of the day, you're going to end up reaping this beautiful, bountiful harvest that's full of this warm, loving, and happy relationships. No, you won't. No, no, you won't, and no, you can't. You should know that most living together arrangements, they don't last. Just statistically speaking, they don't last. A professor at John Hopkins University, he recently explained that Americans have the shortest living together relationships of any of the wealthy countries in the world. It is a very weak relationship. That same professor went on to say that while women commonly think of living together as this kind of a a step toward marriage, it's a transition to marriage. I mean, after all, okay, if he's living with me, well, he's one step closer to being mine for good. Actually, that's not how it usually works out. More than 80% of couples who live together will break up. Eight out of every ten. They will break up either before the wedding happens or afterwards in a divorce. In fact, study after study shows that rather than helping those who maybe do, they live together and then, okay, we decide to tie the knot, we decide to get married. Rather than helping that relationship, living together before marriage actually, actually it serves the opposite effect. It actually contributes to higher rates of divorce. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, that's a branch of the CDC, couples who live together and then marry, they are 50% more likely to divorce than those who do not. Doesn't work, does it? Statistics show that. The Bible shows that. And the fact of the matter is, when you sow selfishness, that it's all about me and here's what I want, this is the reason that I'm not willing to make a commitment, then guess what? You can't reap unselfishness, which is the very basis for a long-lasting marriage. In fact, one sociologist wrote the following. They said that people who live together tend not to be as committed as married couples because they are more oriented to their own personal autonomy. That's a lot of psychobabble for what? oriented to their own personal autonomy. It's talking about that people are selfish. That's what's going on there when couples are living together. Selfish people. Isn't it stunning then that people who won't commit because they're so selfish don't make good marriage partners? Wow! Aren't you glad that our government shelled out all kinds of money to research something that the Bible was saying all along and that is that you reap what you sow. Perhaps the most important reason that living together outside of marriage doesn't work is because it's based on the faulty preposition that what I need to do is I need to audition people in order to ultimately find the right person to get married to. I mean, come on. Why be in a hurry to marry someone when you can test 
your marital compatibility. You can test that by sharing a bed and sharing a bathroom for a few months or maybe even a couple of years. You know, in that sense, living can, together can, it can kind of serve as a, as a weeding out process, going to weed out any unsuitable partners until hopefully one day that right person, that right one comes along and boom, it's a match. And you know what? That is, that is one of the most common myths about marriage today. And that is that marriage is all about finding the right person. You've got to find that right one person who will make you happy. You've got to find that right one person who you really enjoy being with. That right one person who shares all of your same interests. That right one person who, who you will really like living with. You see, it's this audition process to see if you might be the right one for, for me. Contrast that attitude with what the Bible shows us. Would you look in the beginning? Look in Genesis, please. In Genesis chapter 24, we read here about Isaac. Isaac's father, Abraham, had sent a servant to go and get a wife for Isaac in what we would probably term as an arranged marriage. I want you to notice how all of that ended up playing out. In Genesis 24, beginning in verse 62, now Isaac had returned from Berlehiroi, and he was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah, that's the young lady that the servant had went and found, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, That is my master. She took her veil and, her cover and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac, verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Can I have you notice very carefully the order of events here? That he married her, and then he learned to love her. Now, we look at that and we probably are going to say, are you kidding me? Wow, whoa, I don't know about all that. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood teaches us that, hey, there's just that one person out there for you. You've got to get out there and you've got to find that one soulmate. But in Genesis chapter 24, that's not what's happening at all, is it? Here's somebody, just, we just brought this person to you and it really doesn't matter what you think, this is going to be your wife. In fact, there are still places in the world today, places that are over in, in kind of the eastern part of the world, eastern countries, where they do still practice arranged marriages. And again, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh my, that, that just seems like that would be horrible and awful. But ironically, in those countries, in those countries, divorce rates are very, very low. You see, even in an arranged marriage, those couples learn to love each other and they each learn to be the right person. And that really is where Genesis chapter 24, and I'm going to suggest that all the rest of the Scripture really places the emphasis on being the right person. Because when you are being the right person, someone who loves God and His Word and lives for Him, then you can have a happy marriage with a rich person or with a poor person. You can have a great marriage with somebody who's good looking or 
or with somebody who's homely. You can have a great marriage with somebody who's really exciting or somebody who's really dull and boring. Because none of those kinds of superficial things are going to matter when two people are just trying to serve the Lord and be Christians. And I know that to be true. Because I have known Christian marriages that have survived bankruptcy and poverty and disease and other terrible tragedies. The kinds of things that would absolutely shipwreck an uncommitted, selfish, where's my perfect soulmate relationship. Those Christian marriages survive those difficulties because those two people were determined that come what may, they were both going to be the right person. I need to say very carefully to young people, I need you to listen very closely here. Young people, you don't need to test drive your relationship when that relationship is built on Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? When two people are determined to build their lives on the solid rock of Jesus, there's no test drive needed. We are trusting the Lord and we are trusting His way and each of us are going to do what we're supposed to do so that that marriage can be awesome. But when two people approach marriage and it's not going to be based and built on Jesus Christ, then you can rest assured, just like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, you can rest assured that that house, it's going to go splat. It will fail because in the words of the wise man, Our ways, our way of thinking, those are the ways that lead to death. Now, I said at the beginning of the lesson that there'd be a bonus in here for married folks before I concluded, and I want to to conclude with that right now. Uh, Married folks, what is it that we can do to help maybe expose the folly of choosing to live together without the benefit of marriage? You know, I realize in some ways that maybe we are a little bit limited as to what we can do to affect change in the world around us, particularly in a, in a, in a big sort of way. I understand about that. I understand that sometimes we feel, we feel helpless about, you know, what can I really do about the ever-rising divorce rates in our world? You know, what can I do about the issue of gay marriage? What am I supposed to do about people who shack up? I, I don't have any control over what others do. And that is true. But do you want to know what we can do? What we can do is we can model marriage for this world by setting the right example. That's what you and I need to do. All around us, people, our culture is just down on marriage. As I noted earlier, nearly half of all young adults today, they say that marriage is an outdated institution. It's obsolete. You don't need marriage. Just just live together. But I'm suggesting to you this morning that Christians, we need to be pro-marriage. That this is indeed one of the ways that we can separate ourselves from the world. That we as the children of God, we just have a different view about marriage. We believe that it can work and that it can be good and great. That we see marriage as something that is desirable, that it is a gift from God. And so what do we do? What we do is we show that. And furthermore, we speak about that. When maybe a young couple announces that they have gotten engaged, what do we want to say? What we want to say is we want to say, wonderful! 
We want to encourage them. We want to pray for them. We want to help them in every way that we possibly can because we believe they've made a good choice. We want to let them know that they have made a good decision. We're not going to join the the negative and ugly chorus of the world around us that says all kinds of pessimistic things like, Oh, getting married. Oh, man, it's just the wretched ball and chain. Oh, I tell you what, it's going to be the end of your freedom, buddy boy. Oh, you're going to be whipped. You might as well just cash it in right now. No, we're not going to say those things. What we're going to do is we're going to go to that young couple and we're going to tell them how good marriage can be. You go to them and you tell them how good it can be on the first day that they are married and you tell them that it will be even way better when they've been married as long as you have been married. And what that means is is that means that just kind of very practically speaking, we're going to have to also be living that out ourselves, aren't we? It's not enough just for us to talk the talk about the blessing of marriage. We need to be living that blessing. We need to be showing and demonstrating that blessing. You know, honestly, honestly, if we, Christians, if God's people, if we don't know the blessings and the joys of marriage, then who in this world does? Who in our lost and dying and confused world knows the blessings of marriage if Christians don't know it? If our marriages are sorry and weak and lame and they bring bitterness and heartache, then how can we possibly expect the people of our world to look at the Bible and to say, oh, I'll tell you what, the Bible's right. Yeah, I want to do things in the Bible way. Brothers and sisters... God does not call upon us to just have average marriages. God does not call upon Christians to have okay marriages. God does not call upon Christians to have sort of pretty good marriages. God calls upon His children to have the very best marriages. And so our job then as the salt of the earth and as the light of this world is to show that. To show that. To let others see the happiness and the fulfillment and the longevity that really cannot be found anywhere else in any other relationship except a godly marriage. You know, when we talk about abortion, we always say that it's not good enough to just be against abortion. We have to also be for adoption. And that's exactly right. I'm saying to you this morning, it's not good enough for us to just be against living together, for us to rail against the sin of fornication. We need to do one better. We need to be wildly for. We need to be pro-marriage in how we speak about it and indeed how we live it out. Our message to that lost, dying, confused world. Our message ought to be, God has something wonderful for you. He does, and we know. We know because we have been the first-hand personal beneficiaries of those blessings. Why don't you trust God that His way is the very best way? I heard it said once before, That marriage is like glue. And living together is like Velcro. 
I think that's a pretty good analogy. Because what you have there with one of those materials is you have something that you can build something that's strong and tight. Whereas with the other material, you're talking about something that's destined to be pulled apart. And so the Bible says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I trust this morning that you have seen the folly in that Velcro relationship and that furthermore you have seen the extraordinary value of a relationship that can be bonded like glue. Would you pray with me please? Let's pray to God. Our dear gracious God, we come before you this morning sobered by the candor of your word and the straightforwardness with which you have spoken. Father, we come before you confessing that far too often we allow our own ideas about human relationships, we allow those ideas to become the template for how we live our lives instead of listening to you and trusting your word. Father, we're asking your forgiveness for that. We're asking you to help us, help us to see the beauty of what you have designed and what you have set up for companionship and for marriage. Father, help us to always strive to be the right kind of people, to be the right kind of person who would be fit to be a husband, the right kind of person who would be fit to be a wife. Help us to be that not only as we are seeking out a companion, but help us, Father, that even as we are married, that we continue in those things. Help us, Father, to always be like your son, Jesus. Father, we ask a special blessing at this time for our young people, for those who are looking and desiring one day to be married. Father, help them not to be blinded by the world's way of thinking and the world's lies. Help them, Father, to have their eyes awakened and open to the truths of your word and to trust that your way is best. Father, we ask that you would help those of us who are married, help us in our marriages, help us to model and to show and to speak of what a wonderful blessing you have given us in this one flesh relationship. We thank you so much for Jesus and for the salvation that comes through Him. And it is in His precious name that we offer this prayer. And amen.